my name is Pastor AJ. I am uh, the assistant pastor here over high school and children's ministry. It's good to be with you and worship with you this morning. I'm excited to continue worshiping through the book of Acts and uh, just study that together this morning as we, we begin to see, we saw some of it in Acts chapter 5 and sort of the, the drama that started to fill the church and we're seeing some more of the enemy's attempts to thwart God's purposes and God's plan and we're going to see how God still uses that and redeems these situations for his glory and for his purposes. That God's purposes can never be thwarted or stopped. So I want us to think about as we're entering into this section is... Ooh, hit a dark spot here. Weird. It's like when you're in a pool and it's warm in an area. Um, one of... Not like that... <laughs> One of the things I want us to notice here is that last week we talked about these proto-deacons, right? These first type of deacons, and seven were chosen to serve. And one of the first ones mentioned was this guy named Stephen, and that's really who we're going to focus on today. Stephen was someone who was named as being full of grace and wisdom, faith in the Holy Spirit. Those are two different descriptors that he uh, in this section in Acts. And it's important to me to notice this about Stephen, that Stephen wasn't one of the ones chosen to teach, he was one of the ones chosen to serve. And so as we get this first martyr in the church, Stephen did not think that serving tables was beneath him. Stephen did so out of duty and love for the Lord. This morning, village, if we are feeling complacent or as if duties or assignments are beneath us, I want to challenge you, to look at the example of Stephen. So Stephen was willing to serve tables. And we're about to see this guy can preach. And he can preach for a while. But he served tables. That was not a waste. That was intentionally designed by God for this man in this season. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verse 9. I do want to point out, because I am obsessive about some grammar things. Uh, I capitalized his on application point number two on the back. I do not believe Stephen is the Lord. It should be lowercase, so you can edit that on your own. Uh, Acts chapter six. Um, we're in verse eight. We're in verse eight of Acts chapter six. That first section passed around on last week, uh, proto-deacons, seven chosen to serve. And one of those seven was named Stephen. Stephen becomes this first martyr in the church. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and all those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So Stephen, a man chosen to serve tables, full of grace, doing great powers, great signs, he has this dispute with people. They, they choose. And the area that they're coming from is, is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Uh, any idea what that means? What do you think freedmen would mean? Freed from the law? Yeah? Any idea what freedmen would mean? I just realized that we don't usually do this on Sunday, so you're probably like, why are you interacting with us? <laughs> this is a Thursday youth thing. But I do want you to engage. Uh, freedmen, what does that mean? 
Freedom from slavery. Thank you, Philip. Yes, freedom from slavery. So these uh, looks like from context that these people were Jews who had been slaves in different parts. We have uh, sorry, the Cyrenians, the Cilicians, the Alexandrians. They're coming from all these areas, and they're, they're worshiping in this synagogue that was known as a synagogue of freed men. And so these men have been in service and trained and have um, had Jewish masters in these areas and are well-educated, it seems like. And they're seeing this guy Stephen do these great works and powers, and he's doing them in the name of Jesus, which is problematic for the Jews because... They're the ones who crucified him. Um, and they are denying the authority that Jesus had. And so they're disputing with him. Now, a, a couple points, as I, as I mentioned, that foretaste of this, hey, Stephen was just uh, a guy chosen to serve tables. And he didn't say, that's just my assignment. I'm just, doing, I'm just doing table ministry. No, Stephen knew what he believed. He disputed with them. He argued with them. He knew what he believed. Stephen knew what he believed. Second thing is, Stephen was doing great signs and wonders. He didn't just see serving tables. Like, no, from, from 8 to 9 o'clock on Saturday mornings before an event at Village, I come and I set up tables, and that's my only ministry, that's my only job. It's up to the pastors and the teachers to dispute with people um, and to teach them about the Word of God. And no, that's not the example at all we see in the Bible, nor is it the example we see in Stephen. Stephen saw this as a part of his ministry, and a part of his main assignment, which was to be faithfully present, to display and teach the word of God, to defend his glory, and to do these signs and wonders to further his church. Stephen wasn't just a person who served tables. So they argue with him. They dispute with him. In verse 10 it says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And I think back to Acts chapter 2, when Pentecost comes. And there are people speaking and teaching, and, and people are wondering, aren't these just uneducated men? How are they doing this? How are they speaking or teaching in this way? And it was the Holy Spirit who came and worked in that way. Now Stephen's here. He's just a dude serving tables. And the difference he has is he has the Holy Spirit indwelling him. That he's able to lean into that, to use his wisdom and his power to further the kingdom. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And his wisdom is such that people cannot compete with it. And they're getting really frustrated. They can't understand why they keep losing in these debates with this man who's serving tables in the church. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. It's good to note Moses in a second because he's going to go into Moses in depth. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Now, notice with Stephen too, there is a mirror image in Stephen's story to that of Christ. That of Christ's trial, that of his... Death in some ways. We'll see some things pop up that are similar between Stephen and Jesus. Now, it is worth noting, and I think it's significant to me, that in Jewish law, do you know what the penalty penalty is for false witness? Death. Meaning, you are not allowed to lie about somebody. Period. Because the penalty is death. And so, what do these people do? They are willing to risk it all to get Stephen put to death himself. 
And because it goes with the status quo for the time, the leader. This is real odd. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, you can edit it. Well, next week, red pens in the worship folders. Red pens. Uh, they're willing to risk it all to put Stephen to death. They're willing to risk this false witness and put him on trial, just like they were willing to do with Jesus. And because it's against the status quo, against the leaders of the time, they're willing to move forward with it. They're willing to accept it. Because if anything goes against their agenda, it's not going to fly. Now, the sad part is, the enemy is using this, the Jews think this is going to work, but we know the rest of the story because we're here. It didn't work. It's not going to work. Let's finish reading this section here. He stared at the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him, and they brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses. That's worth death. And who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, is that true? Was Jesus going to destroy this place? Was he going to destroy the temple? No. In fact, that's even what Jesus was accused of. They were like, weren't you, you said you were going to destroy this place and not one stone would be left on another. And three days later, you'd raise it back up. But what was Jesus referring to? His death and his resurrection. And he wasn't talking about destroying the law. In fact, in fact he, he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So immediately, the first two accusations, completely wrong. Completely wrong accusations against Stephen. But you know what Stephen is? He's faithful. He's faithful. The Lord's assigned him here, and he's faithful. This is my favorite verse 15 in chapter 6. It says, Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, angels in the Bible are described very differently. Um, sometimes they have eyes all around. Sometimes they have multiple faces on their heads. So what in the world is Luke trying to get at here by saying that Stephen's face is like the face of an angel? Uh, He's trying to say the Lord was with him. Everyone saw Stephen's face and saw that the Lord was with him. He was present. He was in his midst. He was indwelling him through his Holy Spirit. Stephen's face showed that even in the accusations. Now, some of us, myself included, cannot stand to be falsely accused of things. We can't stand it. We can't stand to hear these things and we freak out and defend ourselves and sometimes slander people back or try to stir things up even more. But Stephen, leaning into the Holy Spirit, knew his assignment and knew what he was supposed to do. And he stood there, falsely accused but he's given a chance at a defense. Point number one in your notes, the people who could not, the people could not compete with the spirit and Stephen's wisdom, which became highly problematic. The people could not compete with the spirit and Stephen's wisdom, which became highly problematic. The high priest Caiaphas says to him, are these things so? Stephen says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into a land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance and not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So what Stephen is beginning to do here is to take a step back and and resonate with the Jews who are accusing him and the high priest as well and say, this story doesn't start with Jesus. It starts with Abraham. And Jesus is fulfillment of that covenant that God made with Abraham way back in Genesis 12. So he starts back there and begins to give this sermon and walk all the way through this history of Israel and display for them how God's hand has been at work since his plan began way back in Genesis, even to now. God's weaving through history this faithful, wise, thought-through plan, and it's working. Stephen's going to show them that. Now, the bummer about this sermon is that he doesn't actually finish it. He doesn't get to finish, ooh, there we go. Might as well. doesn't get to finish it before completely uh, being stopped and stoned on the spot. But his purpose and his point is that they might also repent and believe, which is actually how this book ends in Acts, with Paul appearing before Caesar and his desire for him to repent and believe. Everybody in Acts who is falsely accused, um, they use that opportunity to preach the gospel. They use the opportunity to be faithful with where God has assigned them. Verse 5, Yet he gave no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to a man in possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after they shall come out and worship me in this place, and he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Patriarchs of those tribes of Israel. Stephen's just displaying for the high priest and, and really everyone in, who's present in this synagogue uh, in this area what they already know. This story isn't new for them, but he's trying to illustrate for them, look, this gospel story, this thing that you're upset about with Jesus, it didn't start there. It's a bigger picture. It goes way further back. And he's in the camp on Moses because he was accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God way back there in chapter 6, verse 11. Patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all of his household. And then there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob the father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver. From the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So it's time 
of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Now, sometimes when we're reading scripture and we've heard stories before, we can start to tune it out. And I'm afraid that that is beginning to be what is happening here. Um, This story uh, is important and imperative for Stephen to share with the people in his context. Keep in mind, he is about to be stoned. He's not filibustering. He's trying to display the gospel for them in a way that they fully understand, in a way that they can get. If he's being accused of misrepresenting Moses, he's going to say, no, this is how the story goes. I know Moses. You know Moses. Remember how they got into Egypt? Remember how God used that and redeemed them, and he's working in a similar way now? That's his purpose here. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king. Oh, I'm sorry. We already were there. Moses was instructed with all the wisdom, verse 22, of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his word and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you, cha- why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when the forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame in the fire of a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came to the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come... I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man sent us both a ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. You can already see he's starting to draw connections with Moses and Jesus. Despised, rejected, scorned, wilderness. They didn't trust and they didn't believe him. It's not... The, the people who he's talking to are not dumb. They're going to get these connections. They're going to understand what he's trying to say. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who in the congregation, in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, who do, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it, um, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, and the star of your God, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. At this point, the hearers 
would start to get it. See, that was a really hard passage for the people of Israel to hear way back in Amos. As they heard it, it cut. Why? Because the land and the seed were central to the covenant that they had made with the Lord. The land was their identity, not the Lord. And so when God said, I'm taking you out of here, you are worshiping false gods and you will be sent into exile into Babylon. Now the Lord, of course, used that and redeemed that for his glory in a beautiful way. The people at this point would hear that and maybe that wound would still be in some way fresh some 500 years back in the land. Maybe that's still hard for them to hear. Stephen uses that. Think that structurally this is beginning to be where it goes south. I do want to note, as we're finishing up this Old Testament section of Stephen's sermon, that the gospel is confrontational, that it is offensive, and that if it's not, I don't think we're teaching it right. Um, Here's where Stephen is. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And he turns. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, and so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. How's that for an application section? Stephen finishes his sermon and turns and says, look, this is you. You're doing the same thing your fathers did. And he uses this gospel presentation. Uh, it doesn't get to finish the like, so turn and repent part because they get so angry. But he, he finishes this and says, you are stiff-necked. You are like your fathers before you. You are not obeying. You are not following. You murder the righteous one. You murder the Messiah. His blood is on your hands. Now, as believers, we understand this story in a, in a much bigger way than just Jews in the synagogue of the freedmen at the time of this high priest. We understand that God's blood is actually on our hands. That the Messiah's blood is on us. We murdered him through our sin, through our disobedience. The righteous one, the Messiah. The difference is when we hear this call of you stiff-necked people, this how dare you murder the one that God sent, we recognize, <laughs> Lord, uh, we don't have words. We don't, <laughs> we chose to sin. We chose 
to disobey. We chose to turn from you. And still, in that, God sent His Son, knowing what we'd do. Still in that, God had grace and He had mercy. Still in our present disobedience at times, God still has grace and He has mercy. That is new every morning. That we lean into that. I was reflecting yesterday with my wife about just the way that God's been blessing us over and over and over again. And it's overwhelming sometimes and it's, it's unmerited. We don't deserve it. We don't have any standing before God to say, God, you, you should be doing this for me or you should be doing this for me. No, we are the stiff-necked people that Stephen's talking about. We are the murderers of the righteous one. Yet, that is not the name we are called by him. We are called sons and we are called daughters. We are not slaves to wickedness, to evil. We are the freed men. The irony of those accusing him is that they're not free. They're slaves. Not to an earthly master, but to sin. The Stephen, who's about to be stoned, is truly the free man. Point number two in your notes, Stephen uses a familiar story to display the confrontational essence of the gospel. The gospel is confrontational. Believe that this is an area where we have failed at times in the evangelical church in America. That we don't want people to feel bad. We don't want you to walk away feeling down But maybe it's okay to sit there for a second and say, yeah, you and I are sinners deserving death. And unless we repent, that's what we will be paid. Yet, the good news is not that we did anything good, not that we are righteous by our own merit or standing or works, because we can teach, because we lead a group because we're the ones serving tables because we're on the deacon board or elder board or a pastor or on the worship team. No, none of these things bring you standing before God. These are just fruits of the work that God has already done in us. The reason we can feel good and at home and at peace is because the Holy Spirit indwells us. By all earthly measure, what Stephen's about to endure is terrifying he's about to face death through the means of stoning a gruesome awful humiliating death and in an honor shame culture this is about the worst that it gets yet watch how he responds in this next section he doesn't say why are you doing this to me what is going on i didn't do anything wrong No, he knows what Paul echoes later on in Scripture, that for me to live Christ, to die, gain. He knows that he's about to gain everything. Verse 54, chapter 7. 
Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Yeah, yeah, what Stephen just said was pretty offensive. So that's the proper reaction. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was given this moment of clarity and peace at the end of his life. That he could see the true reality of what is happening in the presence of the Lord. Where there is peace, where there is life. He saw the clouds open, he saw the Lord, he saw Jesus standing next to him. And brought him great peace. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Died. Passed away. There's a lot to unpack that just happened here. First of all, who is Saul? Saul later became known as Paul. Fun fact, he did not change his name. His name never changed. He could still be called Saul. He just was called Paul later on. No name change. Sometimes we look at the road to Damascus and we say, oh, that's where God changed his name. Nope, didn't happen. Um, He can be called Saul or Paul. So here's Saul in this moment, receiving garments. And 8.1 says that he is approving of this execution. So here in this darkest moment, first of all, my question that I had the entire time I was studying this this week Where's the rest of the church? Where's everyone? Seemingly not present at the trial, similar to a man named Jesus' trial. Now, here's this guy at the darkest moment, probably in the church's history. Uh, things have been going well, right? Acts 2, Acts 4. They, they had everything in common, and they shared, they broke bread, they gave thanks, they, they were united, they were one. Things are going well. And then here in Acts 7, someone gets killed for what they believe. And here's this guy who seems powerful named Saul standing there receiving garments, basically encouraging people, yeah, go ahead, go get them. Let me hold your stuff while you go get them. Grab these stones. Go throw those ones at him. Encouraging the execution of somebody who didn't do anything wrong. There's a lot here that if we ended the book of Acts in chapter 7, we'd think, that's a rough ending to the story. But God didn't end it there. He redeemed the story. So Saul, we'll leave him there for a second. He receives these garments and he approves of the execution, as 8.1 says. But it's Stephen that is interesting to me. And I, I mentioned early on uh, in this sermon that Stephen is mirroring a lot of that story of Christ, Right? And what does he say here at the end? One of the phrases that Jesus said on the cross, Father, please forgive them, 
for they do not know what they are doing. And Stephen here says, Father, please do not hold this against them. The people, the Jews at this time, believe that they are acting in righteous defense of the Lord. But they couldn't be further from the truth. Now, some of it may be the pride and the selfishness of being called stiff-necked, stubborn people. Most people don't receive that well. Um, but a lot of it was probably this righteous, that he blasphemed against Moses and God, so we should get him. Now, the bloodthirstiness is a little off. I don't know how you can excuse that. Um, but here they are. They stone this man. They gnash their teeth at them. They cast him out of the city, and they stone him. Now, many of you have heard this before, so please forgive me if you've heard this, but in a stoning of somebody, you would put them in a deep hole, and you'd grab these large rocks and drop them down on him. So it's not like it's not like kids' movies, Paint David and Goliath, where he has these little small smooth stones, and he's like chucking them at a guy. Um, no, they're like big pieces of rock that are being dropped down this hole on him. And so it's through God's grace that he allows Stephen here to, quote, fall asleep in the middle of the stoning. Now for Stephen, as I mentioned, this stoning wasn't the end but the beginning. He died here. But it's appointed that man die once. And after that comes judgment. And for Stephen, he saw that future. He saw, standing at the right hand of the Father, Jesus. He saw the Father, he saw the glory, and he knew that was where he was going to be. Faithful to the end, Stephen stuck to his assignment. Did what the Lord asked him to do. Followed through. Point number three in your notes, even in his death, Stephen shows the power of the Spirit and the heart of the Lord. My own personal uh, solo time, I'm reading through Jeremiah, and the longest book in the Bible. what I'm gathering from this is, a, and I'm thinking bigger picture here, God really hates to be misrepresented. He hates it. That's one of the things that bothers him with Moses. Moses is told by God to go and speak to this rock that water might come out. And Moses takes his staff and smacks that thing. And God's upset with Moses because God's like, I wasn't, I wasn't angry at the people like that. And as my prophet, you were supposed to display how I was feeling. And that's not what you did. In Jeremiah, the prophets are... Prophets. A lot of false ones. Gather around, telling the people, hey, everything's okay. God's going to bring you blessing. Things are going to be good. Everything's okay. And it's this that Jeremiah has to come and speak against. And Jeremiah is cut to the heart because he's like, I don't... I don't want to tell you everything you're doing wrong, but that's what God has assigned to me. And if I don't speak, my stomach hurts and I feel sick until I do speak the words. So Jeremiah is faithful to this. And what catches me about Stephen and the connection that this makes is Stephen displayed the heart of God to these people. As modern Americans, we see movies and we place ourselves in them and they're like, well, if I was in that situation, here's what I'd do. And I'd I would, I would, I know karate, so I'd chop that guy and then I'd run off. And 
that would be misrepresenting God. And Stephen here knows what God wants him to do. He sees the Father, he sees the Son, and he says, I'm ready. I'm ready. Lord, don't hold this against him. Stephen was a man full of grace, given by the Lord. His grace wasn't conditional or transactional. It was permanent. When faced with death by stoning, Stephen showed grace. He didn't say, that's enough. I've been nice to you for so long, but you guys never turned and repented. I've been so kind to you, but you didn't do what I wanted you to do, so I'm taking it back now. No, Stephen displayed that heart of the Lord. That heart of the Lord that shows grace upon grace upon grace after every sin, after every breaking of the covenant by his people, after every turning from him, after treating Jesus like cheap grace. God's heart is still grace. And his heart is still mercy. His heart is still love for you. Stephen displayed that faithfully to the very end. Three points in application. We've already talked about point number two. You can fix that error there. Point number one, our natural talents and learned reason do not match up to the power and wisdom of the Spirit. Don't try to manage on your own, but fully lean into the power of the Spirit. Now, what I mean by that is not just sit there and do nothing and hope that the Holy Spirit speaks through you. It's clearly not taught in Scripture. Clearly not what Stephen did. Stephen was faithful to his assignment. What I mean by that is you best be like Stephen and learn as much as you can and do as much as you can. And don't think I just serve tables, but don't do it in your own power. Do that through the Holy Spirit. Do that through the Lord. I think that one of the hardest things that I can see in the church sometimes is people who think that their natural talents are needed. Are needed beyond what the Holy Spirit or God can offer. That the Holy Spirit needs our help in some way. Or that there is this hierarchy or desire to ascend to a status or a leadership that we want for us when this is God's church. This is God's place. These are his people. These are his sheep. If we understand God's heart, we best not misrepresent him. We need to be very cautious with what he says and what he desires. Lean into the Holy Spirit. Um... I've heard over the years people not wanting to do ministry because they're just not gifted in that way. Um, you know what you weren't gifted for? Doing good works before the Holy Spirit. Uh, God desires his church to flourish. He desires for us to serve him. We need to not manage on our own but fully lean into the power of the Spirit. Point number two. Confronted with death, Stephen stood firm, carried out his assignment. Confronted with change or discomfort, how do we respond? 
we can be so complacent, I can be so complacent, just used to the normal and the comfort and the rest and whatever I want and need I can get because we live in America. But what is the Lord asking us to do? If you feel like the Lord's asking you, you should probably do it. I love the people in this church, and I've seen so many people, regardless of age, step into roles that they believe the Lord has called them to. Um, I, I don't want to embarrass people, but I have somebody who is older than 30 on the youth staff that thought that they, at their age, should be faithful where the Lord has assigned them. And they joined youth staff, which is awesome. The Lord has used that mightily. What is the Lord asking you to do? What is he asking us to do as a church? We need to stand firm and carry out our assignment. Number three, compassion and grace must be unconditional. Compassion and grace must be unconditional and not transactional. Compassion and grace must be unconditional and not transactional. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, you don't do something nice for someone to expect something nice in return. You don't do something kind for someone to expect them to do the same thing to you. Well, when they were sick, I sent them a card. And you know what? They never sent me a card when I was sick, so I guess we're not friends anymore. Um, I'm so glad God doesn't behave that way. (laughs) Our compassion and our grace should be what imitates that heart of the Father. What Stephen imitated to the very end when he died. That he was going to be faithful, regardless of what everyone else was going to do. Though none go with me, still I will follow. That's what Stephen did. It wasn't conditional. It wasn't that he put in his time. It wasn't that he deserved more. It wasn't that he wanted more. No, he was faithful to where God had him. He showed grace and he showed compassion because that's what the Lord would have shown. Christians. Christ-like. We must display that heart of the Lord faithfully, not misrepresenting Him, but showing compassion and grace, especially when we don't agree. That is the critical moment. I was thinking back to two years ago at the start of this pandemic. Um, in March, I was driving to Target and... Uh, it was about a week after lockdowns had started, and I was grabbing a few essential things and going into the parking lot. And, and at that point in time, everyone was so self-seeking. And for some reason, it struck me as I was, I was going to pull through this area, somebody waved me through, like they allowed me to come through. And everyone was so intense at the time, and that small action for me made me take a step back and say, wait. Have I been so self-seeking that I failed to notice anybody else around me? And I think in that moment I had. I had, I had become so self-centered that what I was doing was for me and I need to do this because I want to. 
then I'm going to get that parking spot and I don't care what you think. No, somebody took their time to stop and slow down, wave me through. It's dumb because it happens all the time, but the Lord used that to say, this is the attitude that I want you as believers to have. To have that compassion, to have that grace, to not be self-seeking, but look out for each other. Compassion and grace must be unconditional and not transactional. Please hear that today. That is how it is given to us, so we must understand this core feature of the heart of the Lord, that he gives compassion, that he gives grace. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, how many times must I forgive? And Jesus says, 70 times 7. As you have been forgiven, so you must also forgive. As we have been extended compassion, we must also show compassion. As we have been extended mercy, we must also show mercy. As we have been extended grace, we must also show grace. So what are our opportunities to do that this week? How can we stick like Stephen, faithful to the end? How can we imitate God's heart to a lost and broken, stiff-necked world? And how can we as believers respond in a way that the Lord might respond? That we could faithfully represent him wherever we are assigned. Let me pray. Lord, you are so good. You are so compassionate. You are so full of grace and truth and love for us. Sometimes I don't get it. Lord, we see this example of Stephen and it's hard for me to think through and measure up how that is not how I feel like I would respond. But it's how you desire for us to respond. So Lord, make us those men and women who show your compassion and your grace to the end. That we are faithful, that we preach the gospel, that we confront people graciously who need to hear your truth, need to hear your gospel. Lord, we thank you that your gospel is not just for the lost, but for us, those of us who struggle with anxiety, depression, Lord, whatever it may be that makes us doubt who you are and where we stand before you. Lord, you are faithful. You are good. You are never changing. You are constant. We give you praise. We give you glory for that, Lord. Help us to be compassionate and gracious because that's who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.